Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Sam Bowman, who's an assistant professor at New York University. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. Uh, today we're going to talk about a paper that was posted on Archive a little while ago titled Glue, a multitask benchmark and analysis platform for natural language understanding. So I guess I've seen a lot of papers recently that try to understand what's going on inside of these big models using a lot of different tasks to evaluate. And it seems like this is an attempt to pull a bunch of things together and get a common framework to evaluate stuff. Is that a good description of what's going on here? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, if we should launch into this now, I guess I could I could tell three somewhat different stories for what, what Glue, is, Glue is aiming at. The actual history is that um, this came out of these RepEval workshops, these workshops on evaluating vector space representations for NLP. And the consensus that was emerging among a few of the organizers, including Omar Levy, Felix Hill, who wound up um, contributing a lot to Glue, was that sort of the thing we wanted to do next wasn't necessarily a workshop, it was a shared task on this problem of building a reusable sort of sentence understanding component, something like a sentence um, sentence encoder, something like what you see with Elmo. Um, we wound up building the shared task and sort of not bothering uh, with this year's iteration of the workshop. So this is kind of that. The other, the other kind of historical explanation for how it came about is um, um, I'd been planning this JSALT workshop. This is part of this um, Johns Hopkins summer program where you get team of researchers together for a couple of months to sort of hack away at some hard problem. Um, we were interested in, all right, what do, what do sentence representation models learn? We wanted to have some benchmark that we could use to measure to make sure that things that we were studying were actually any good. We wanted kind of a nice single number and Glue was our attempt to produce a single number that um, would be at least reasonably robust to our trying to sort of aggressively overfit it. Um, the, the real pitch kind of stepping back though is we, we think there's a lot of interesting work starting to go on on this problem of building reusable sentence encoders. And it didn't seem like anyone had really put a really serious effort into figuring out what a good what a good performance metric would be, um, and we wanted to do that. The The only clear competitor that was really trying to kind of propose a standardized evaluation was this project called Centeval. And though that came out recently, that was standardizing an evaluation that had been around for five or 10 years and was based on kind of the public data that was available five or 10 years ago, and we, we thought some of those decisions were worth revisiting. Yeah, in the paper you mentioned some of the distinctions between what you're doing in Glue and, and what uh, Centeval is about. Would you like to elaborate on this a little bit here? Uh, yes, so I see I see two differences. Um, Centeval is focused on um, is focused on sentence to vector models. So something that I guess the name says it all a, a sort of a pre-trained function that gives you a fixed length vector for any sentence. Um, they do a lot of things. They do a lot of things to make evaluation very easy by assuming that they will automatically train models for each of the target tasks and give you performance numbers for a suite of target tasks. Um, we wanted Glue to be much more flexible. We wanted it. We wanted to make it possible to use it to evaluate systems like Elmo or Cove or the um, the recent OpenAI transformer work, where there is no single bottleneck where you represent a sentence as vector, and there may not even be a sort of fixed exact set of parameters that's shared across models that represents your sentence encoder function. We want this to be a useful benchmark for um, any project that is looking at sort of standardized approaches to sentence understanding. So that's one big point of contrast. 
we can evaluate this wider range of things, but it also means that users have to sort of train their own models for the target tasks. Yeah, I guess that's that's the big thing. The other big point of difference is just that um, yeah, that we've sort of picked this this newer set of tasks. We're including um, we're including some tasks with with somewhat larger data sets, um, and we're putting up this sort of online leaderboard open competition. So, can you describe what exactly Glue is then? Like, what what tasks do you um, put together? How does the evaluation work? What is this? So. Um, I think the easiest way to describe it is as a shared task on multitask learning. There are nine target tasks. They're all, um, the input is always either a single sentence or a pair of sentences. The task is always classification or regression. The goal is to build a model that does well in aggregate across all the tasks. We essentially just measure performance on each of those tasks, take an average, that's your score. We have an online leaderboard for this. We have some software tools you can download to make evaluation a little bit easier. Many of these tasks, we have sort of private test data. In addition, we have some sort of auxiliary diagnostic data um, in NLI format that's meant to give feedback on every submission for sort of what kinds of linguistic properties your model is, is decent at. And just to very quickly go through the list of tasks, we have two sentence classification tasks. COLA is a sentence acceptability task, so sort of is this string of words a sentence? Um, we have binary sentiment classification on the Stanford Sentiment Tree Bank. We've got three sort of textual similarity-oriented tasks, um, Microsoft Research Paraphrase, uh, Quora Question Pairs, and uh, Semantic Textual Similarity Benchmark. And then four um, tasks that sort of broadly fit under natural language inference or textual entailment. There's um, the multi-genre NLI corpus, um, a version of Squad that we converted into um, roughly NLI format, um, to turn it into a sentence pair task. We have the, um, the RTE shared task competitions kind of bundled into one task um, from Ido Degan and collaborators a few years ago. And um, most sort of deliberately challenging task is the Winograd schema challenge um, converted into textual entailment format. This is a, a tiny data set that is explicitly meant to be impossible for statistical NLP models. So that's the set. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting and diverse set of tasks that you collected. Um, Though I'm, I, I wonder about only picking sentence classification and sentence pair classification, right? Your goal is to understand how well our models do across language understanding, I yep. think. And so why restrict ourselves to just sentence classification? Yeah, so that was, um, that was a, a choice we argued over quite a bit and one that I think could have gone, um, could have gone another way. But that was essentially trying to be, it's essentially a concession to practicality, ease of evaluation. We wanted to sort of be one step more ambitious than something like Centival in allowing people to submit models that are that are really sort of competitive with the state of the art on all of these nine tasks. We want people to be able to use the models for Quora question pairs, for MNLI, for Stanford sentiment that you would actually use if you wanted to solve these problems. And we sort of want to do this for any task that we're going to include. What this meant though is that we're making evaluation pretty sort of effort intensive, pretty slow. And we were kind of hoping that with, with single sentence sentence per task, we're hitting a bit of a sweet spot where evaluation takes time and effort, but it's something where you start it running overnight, in the morning you get your results. You, you've, you've trained your models in your nine tasks. And that's feasible with sort of state-of-the-art systems on these tasks with modern GPUs right now. We were seriously considering adding tasks like question answering or translation, where you have either large inputs or sort of a, um, a generation stage in the output. Both of those, if you really want to get competitive performance in those tasks, you need to train much larger, much slower models. And just the evaluation stage of an experiment pipeline could expand into uh, more than a week. And we were just worried that um, no one would actually want to 
no one would actually want to submit their systems if that was what it took. What about um, sentence evaluation or sentence analysis or single passage anal- analysis, like uh, predicting parse trees or um, part of speech tags or negation scope or whatever? Like, it, is is that too low level for what you're interested in, or is it too difficult? Why not include these? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think all I can say is the sort of uh, trivial answer that it's out of scope. We were we wanted to focus on we wanted to focus on what we were considering language understanding tasks. I think a lot of these tasks are sort of meant as more syntactic tasks, more low level tasks that are sort of meant to be in service of language understanding. And yeah, it, was, it wasn't it wasn't the thing we set out to study. I mean, as a user, of, as a potential user of the platform, I. I don't want to use um, a, f- a platform which has like a ton of uh, tasks because it's not like I'm going to build one model and submit it. I would have to build a model for each of these tasks. Yeah, yeah. Which is uh, the more tasks you'll have, the the less feasible it will be for for people to be able to use it. Yeah, that's right. And there's another there's another trade-off here, which is that we do distribute baseline code, and the hope is that. Um, for a lot of research on on sort of how do we build, how do we train some kind of shared sentence understanding component, you could just plug that into our baseline code and keep all of the code that trains um, the task-specific models. The problem is that that's sort of assuming that our baseline code is close to the state of the art. And as things change, people who want to do well on, on the benchmark are going to have an incentive to sort of rewrite and retune these task-specific models. So we can we can try to save users some effort there, but it's inevitably going to be something that some people have to worry about. And that, that made us want to keep the diver- keep the diversity of output formats for tasks pretty limited. What are the like uh, com- the plug and play components of uh, in that implementation? So um, the we have a, a baseline code base, and we're actually coming out with a, a sort of revamp nicer version in a few weeks. But essentially, we have. We have a um, this big code base that's built around Allen NLP that makes it fairly easy to do this three-step process of pre-training a shared um, BIOSTM sentence encoder. Um, this could easily be replaced with a, a transformer or something else, but BIOSTM in our experiments on some pre-training task. Then either in single task training or multitask training, um, training task-specific models on the nine glue tasks, and then evaluating those on the glue um, test sets and and sort of writing files to disk that you can then send off for evaluation. Exciting. Looking forward to it. Good year. Can, can I push just a little bit more on this um, task decision? Um, so you, you said you're interested in understanding, and you, you have a diagnostic task, which I want to dig into because I think it's really cool. And as part of the diagnostic, you're looking at predicate argument structure and how well the models capture that. But you're doing it kind of indirectly in the sentence pair classification. Uh, if, if you're really interested in sentence in predicate argument structure, isn't it still in scope to say I have a single sentence and I want to evaluate how well it captures predicate argument structure? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair question. I think that um, I don't think we can I don't think we have a, a completely principled division of sort of sentence understanding versus lower level NLP. I'm not sure that we put a lot of effort into making exactly the right cut there. But I think there is a there is an important distinction between these main nine tasks and this additional diagnostic data we're releasing. So the diagnostic data, um, we're asking everyone who everyone who submits a system on Glue to also submit their predictions on this this additional diagnostic data. But performance on that data doesn't count toward your primary score. Um, it's just something you can um, if you click on a system on the leaderboard, you can see how it does on these categories like predicate argument structure. Um, I think the idea is we, we we ultimately care about systems that perform well on these language understanding, I guess, tasks. Um, we're figuring the point of this diagnostic task is to give feedback to people who are building systems to see sort of, hey, look, your your system does well overall, but it's much worse than, than a lot of the other systems we've seen at 
um, sort of tracking sentence structure correctly or at bringing in the kind of background knowledge that you need to, to do basic sentence understanding. And so there we were willing to expand the scope of what we're interested a little bit to try to give useful feedback. So in the diagnostics data set, you provide pairs of sentences along with uh, annotations, coarse green uh, categories and fine green categories. Could you elaborate on how you get the sentences and uh, what the categories are? Yes. So the, the diagnostic data set we have now, and this is something um, unlike, with the unlike the main task we might actually expand in the future. Diagnostic data set we have now is a set of about a thousand textual entailment examples. So the way we produced these was by uh, selecting um, selecting examples from from the multi-genre NLI corpus, uh, one of the sort of largest tasks in Glue, and um, modify sort of systematically modifying them to make them make these these examples as much as possible sort of exemplify one of about thirty um, sort of target linguistic phenomena or reasoning phenomena we were interested in. Um, so we we sort of by doing that, we ourselves, the five authors, were the the annotators on this. Um, did the annotation, did some filtering for agreement, and came up with these thousand um, labeled examples. Um, the way that we're expecting them to be used is you 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 sort of do whatever you're going to do that that gets you your your nine systems on the nine glue tasks. And here you just evaluate your MNLI classifier, your multi-NLI classifier on this, this data, um, and sort of the ways in which you get the, you, the ways in which your MNLI model gets examples wrong is sort of the current proxy we have for what kinds of, um, what kinds of phenomena your shared sentence encoder is, is decent at handling. And this is a, this is a bit of a compromise where we're having to look at a lot of these phenomena through the lens of textual entailment and not by sort of directly looking at Whatever um, whatever tool you chose to use for sentence representation, um, but we think it does allow us to ask all the questions we're interested in, and empirically we are seeing a fair bit of uh, interesting variation across pre-training tasks in what um, in what kind of analysis examples systems get right and wrong. So you classified the kinds of phenomena that the models could capture uh, into four broad categories. Can you tell us about those? Yes. Um, I'm I'm pulling up the pulling up the full tag set now to give credit when when do uh, where do Julian Michael at uh, UW was the the primary designer of this um, annotation scheme. But we we sort of we started with um, about thirty about thirty categories work we were working with, and these were things where you could sort of very easily design textual entailment examples that ident that exemplified this. this. These were things like monotonicity reasoning with quantifiers. If I tell you that. Um, that some dogs bark, do you know that some animals bark? Uh, things like um, lexical, um, actually lexical entanglement fit in the same category. Uh, various kinds of negation tracking, um, handling syntactically ambiguous sentences in a reasonable way, things like this. Um, we then kind of post hoc grouped these into four larger categories um, to try to to try to get something that I think would be more at the level of how you actually debug a, a deep learning model. So we, we focused on um, Phenomena that were primarily about lexical knowledge, phenomena that were primarily about predicate argument structure and sort of sentence level syntax, phenomena that were primarily about um, logic and kind of the reasoning process in textual entailment, um, and uh, phenomena that, that were drawing on background knowledge and sort of how much, uh, and sort of the stuff that you need to know to do language understanding that isn't exactly part of English. Uh, and uh, each example, uh, each sentence pair will exhibit only one of the fine categories or... So multiple potentially multiple. So we we um, we were attempting to produce examples for each of the each of the thirty odd categories, um, but for many of them there was there was some unavoidable overlap. Uh, so for example, sort of when you're um, 
when you're trying to find good examples of monotonicity reasoning, many of those will also be good examples of negation or quantification. And so some of these do have multiple tags. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm actually not very clear on some of uh, some of these categories. Like, I don't know what monotonicity and, and reasoning mean. Yeah, we, we have... Um, a lot of this couldn't couldn't fit into the the paper. Um, we didn't want to give people fifteen pages of supplementary materials, but um, right. the the website we have a, a long um, a long write up trying to explain the the motivation and background for each of these categories. And just to give the listeners a bit of an example here, like in in the paper, there's a table that shows a whole a range of these. One of these one of the examples is. Tulsi Gabbard disagrees with Bernie Sanders on what is the best way to deal with Bashar al-Assad is sentence one. And sentence two is Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders disagree on what is the best way to deal with Bashar al-Assad. That might be kind of hard. They were so close, you might not have noticed the difference in audio. But um, one of them is Tulsi Gabbard disagrees with Bernie Sanders. And the other one is Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders disagree on. So this is like testing at knowledge of argument realization. Exactly. Where disagree is a verb that um, if you have subject disagrees with, uh, object of with, that's the same as two subjects disagree on. So you need to understand this kind of stuff. And there, there are other like um, uh, simple lexical entailment, as Sam mentioned earlier, about uh, if you see dog, that entails animals in a certain logical direction. Yeah. So uh, th this kind of stuff. That exactly, and that that disagreement example, I think, gets at um, gets at, at the kind of thing that we're 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 really wanting this this diagnostic data set to do. For for each of these nine tasks, some of what you're learning when you train the task-specific model is how to do the task. Um, but we're hoping that a lot of a lot of what you want to learn, if you're training a good system for textual entailment, for sentiment analysis, for um, semantic similarity is just how English works. And that's what's gonna go into that shared encoder. And I think a really clear example of one of these phenomena that's really just about how English works is that kind of alternation, that um, any good modeling technique for sentence understanding um, that's, that's task independent should tell your task-specific model that these two sentences have this really close structural correspondence and they, they mean roughly the same thing. Yeah, I really like this idea of um taking a, a different kind of data set, like we, we train models on these huge, uh, often artificially constructed data sets, and then uh, what we really want to do is understand what's really going on, and we can probe them in specific ways, and I, I really like this general idea. Uh, I guess I saw at ACL, uh, Verge Schwartz presenting a paper that was also very interesting on NLI, showing that um, when you take models outside of the distribution they were trained from, often they break in spectacular ways. Uh, is is that what you see here with this diagnostic data set also? Um, yes, we do. Uh, this is, um, Verit's paper is a great example of this. Our, the results on our diagnostic set have shown some of the same things. And I was at the um, New Forms of Generalization workshop at NACL this year. There were a lot of conversations about this issue that looking at test sets that are drawn from the same distributions as training sets for high-profile language understanding tasks gives us this it turns out wildly misleading view about how good we are at building systems for language understanding. And this wasn't, um, I think the diagnostic set is meant to, to sort of help temper expectations here a bit. Using with the Winograd schema data in Glue is help, was meant to help temper expectations a little bit. This is data that's explicitly meant to sort of um, be resistant to a lot of the kinds of, of task fitting that make this possible. But we did do, we did do a couple of other things that in creating Glue that I think are meant to help inform users a little bit about limitations to generalization in these models. Uh, so these, these are two of the tasks 
where the, um, the task development and test sets aren't drawn from the same distributions of the training set. In multi-NLI, um, we make this especially conspicuous in the, inter in the interface. We have this uh, matched and mismatched test set. Um, they're both annotated by the same pool of annotators in the same way, but the source text that's being annotated are, are quite different. For example, in the, in the matched test set, we have a sec in the match test set and in the training set, we have a section um, that's drawn from switchboard, drawn from telephone speech between strangers. In the mismatch test set, um, the sort of test data for spoken language is drawn from a different data set uh, of um, spoken conversation face-to-face -face among friends. Um, and so similarly, we sort of have a genre mismatch for every piece of data there that's meant to hopefully mitigate this a little bit. Um, also in this COLA data set, this accessibility data set, um, we, have, um, we have sort of a, a slightly different set of linguistic phenomena covered in the test set than in the training set um, that's meant to give you sort of more of a fair, more of a fair estimate of how well your system is actually solving this problem of identifying grammatical sentences. So I, uh, I was wondering how uh, do you think that the same architecture uh, like let's think about uh, one architecture that would be optimal for these tasks, right? For for like uh, one type, uh, the single sentence uh, tasks, and another architecture for maybe all the similarity tasks, and a third one for the inference tasks. Mm -hmm. Do you really think that's uh, what's gonna happen, or do you think each of these data sets may uh, have its own optimal architecture? Because if the the like the platform doesn't require you to submit the same model, uh, really, you can design your own model for a different model for each of the tasks and overfit still to each of the tasks. Of course, it will take more effort to do this, uh, but I, I am interested in your uh, view on how exactly is this helping us uh, show that our models generalize better? Yeah, so this is, um, we, we, we did sort of, uh, we did sort of paint ourselves into the corner, into a corner in how we're, we're designing this, in that we really want to be able to evaluate the tools that work for um, for sentence understanding, regardless of what forms those tools take. So we really didn't want to place any limitation that these that your model for all of your nine tasks share the same architecture or shares some substantial component in common or anything like that. Um, we're already seeing some split in that there are some some models like Elmo where there is a, an exact set of parameters shared in common, and other models like the the OpenAI work where you pre-train all the models in the same way, but then fine-tune them in a way that each of the models diverge and they have no shared parameters at the end. So we, we felt like we really needed to make it possible to evaluate systems like this on a roughly level playing field, but that also meant that we couldn't really rule out in any serious way the possibility of just submitting a basket of nine completely unrelated models that have no techniques in common. Um, I think that's something actually, now that we've sort of made that possible, I hope that people continue to do this. We have, um, we have a baseline, our single task models, where we, we tried to, within some fairly tight constraints, pick the best model for each task and train it separately. And we actually do hope that people keep working on advancing that baseline, because I think, um, I think the sort of what makes work on this problem of sort of reusable sentence understanding tools exciting is when we can get uh, big improvements over that kind of baseline uh, for most of these tasks. That's fair. So that gets at your question. No, no, that, that, that's, uh, that's a fair answer. I, I guess uh, I'm interested a little more uh, insight on how, how you think we will reach the generalization that we're hoping for. Um, so yeah, one way to do this is to improve the architectures we're using. Another is uh, to improve the uh, which, like to pick better 
uh, data set that actually represent uh, the target uh, the target data that we're interested in, but then we wouldn't really be generalizing. So I, I guess I'm not sure how are we going to bridge this gap that we can clearly see in generalization. Yeah, so we're, we're, we put this all out there because we don't have a we don't have an answer that we're really convinced of. But to, to speculate a little bit, um, I guess I see sort of a short term and a long term way that you could attack this. In the short term, um, I think the kind of work that's most exciting is um, finding better ways to do pre-training. This is this is work like um, work like Elma figuring out all right, language modeling works in this way. Let's find some good language modeling data and scale this up. Um, how best to do multitask learning? Um, if maybe you have multiple pre-training objectives that each seem to teach you something different, multi doing multitask learning effectively in NLP is still very hard. Um, and sort of how to do transfer learning? Do we want to do we want to um, to start with a sort of common model and fine tune it for each of these tasks? Do we want to share share parameters rigidly between these tasks? Kind of how do we want to do this? I think there are a lot of sort of fairly fine grained practical questions about how best to build this pipeline of pre-training than task training. Um, architecture plays into that somewhat. I don't know that it's it's the question that I'm most excited about or betting most is going to make the crucial difference on on um, performance on glue. In the in the longer term, um, I hope that people submit systems here that that are completely unrecognizable. Um, I I buy into the claim that that maybe we can maybe we can get a few points above random baseline on 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 this Winograd schema data. But I I do think that that data like this um, is genuinely challenging in a way that that. Uh, systems built on building blocks like sort of a few layers of BIOS terms of the tension that we're, that we're sort of used to using probably aren't going to get to near human performance in some of these tasks. And so I, I'm very curious to see what it takes to actually get substantial improvements on these small, the smaller tasks. But in the, short, in the short term, I expect there's a lot of sort of interesting fine-grained work to be done on figuring out how do we make, um, how do we make it, how do we get that sort of 25% error reduction um, or 75% reduction in the amount of training data we need on some of these medium data tasks. I think that still is something that would have a huge impact on sort of applied work in NLP. And the glue is, is well set up to measure. So I think at, at this point, I think we've talked quite a bit about what glue is, what tasks you've assembled. Um, people will submit systems and you'll keep track of what, what happens. Uh, in your paper, you also ran a bunch of baseline experiments using this framework. Do you want to tell us about those? Um, sure, sure. Um, so we, we were trying to, as of, um, as of April, when we were sort of putting the, the last of this together, get as comprehensive a picture as we could of what people were using for problems like this at the time. Um, so we built three, three categories of model. Um, there were single task trained models, and these all had this, um, this sort of shared architecture of there is a BIOSTM. Every, every task model contains a BIOSTM sentence encoder. Um, the sentence pair models mostly used attention. The, the single sentence models uh, didn't. But we sort of we designed kind of similar, similar architectures for each of the nine tasks, trained them directly. And where this gets interesting is that we also trained versions of these that used um, glove embeddings. Uh, Elmo states and Cove states, these sort of uh, translation pre-trained vectors, as the inputs. So this was our way of evaluating um, Glove, Elmo, and Cove kind of in their natural habitats as tools for solving problems like this. Um, the next thing we did was evaluate 
um, systems, sort of sentence to vector systems, systems more like the ones you're, you're seeing evaluated on um, this, this existing Centeville benchmark. Um, there, these systems don't lend themselves as, as well to building kind of interesting neural network architectures on their outputs. So what we did for these, these were tools like SkipThought, um, was simply run roughly the same thing you'd see run in Centeville, but just on our tasks. So for the single sentence task, we just did, uh, we just stuck a one layer, uh, a one layer neural network classifier on the output of the sentence encoder, didn't update the sentence coder and use that to get task predictions. For the sentence pair task, we'd simply concatenate um, the vector representations for two sentences and build a predictor that way. So we did that for sort of a number of the best and most prominent systems evaluated on Centeville, these sense vector systems. The third category, which is a little bit strange, but is, is what gets us our, our best performance are these multitask models. Um, where here we, we took all of the single task models, these, um, these sort of BIOSGM based models that we were training with or without Elmo, with or without Cove, and trained all of the task models simultaneously. So our um, MNLI model and our Quora question pairs model and our COLA model each had different task-specific parameters um, above the sentence encoder layer, but they were all passing gradients into the same shared sentence encoder. Um, that's what gets us the best performance. I think it makes sense. We're using all the resources of, all the pre-training resources that went into something like Elmo or Cove combined with, um, combined with sort of the training set for all nine of these tasks. That's presumably going to encourage generalization. Uh, but these results are somewhat different from the other results in that they crucially use sort of the entire GLUE benchmark in their training. And so I think the, the, um, the, the relative rankings of systems that were trained in this multitask setting might not quite reflect the, the relative ranking you'd see on a parallel universe GLUE version of GLUE that contained nine different tasks because we're training specifically on these tasks. So I'm looking at the table five and uh, I'm seeing the multitask training results. Most of the time there are lower than the single task training results. Um, so that, that, that's not quite the same thing that you're saying. I, I wanted to clarify this. Yes, so this is a, this is a point I was hoping, um, I was hoping we would, we would, uh, the timing would work out to spare the listeners a little bit. So we, um, we had some, uh, it turns out training these models can take longer than we expected. It turns out that we had some of them that were still running when we, when we sort of were finishing the paper. And so the, um, the results are different between the current archive paper and the uh, leaderboard online. Um, and we're hoping to, to put up an updated version of the archive paper very soon that should match the current results. Um, so we have right now on the site, um, our best systems are um, getting around 69, 69 blue points, 69 on our arbitrary scale that is the average of task performance. And that comes from doing uh, multi-desk learning with attention models with Elmo. Um, and so that's kind of our, our best of all, the best of all our tools combined result. Any interesting insights that you got from looking at the results of all of these experiments? One uh, boring but important practical question that I've been very curious about since these two papers came out is, um, is we found that, that Elmo pre-training in particular is, um, is a really strong baseline. It's that sort of adding Elmo to anything is giving you improvements in performance consistently across all of these tasks. Um, Cove, this sort of which which takes a very very similar idea but with uh, supervised pre-training, um, doesn't seem to behave in quite the same way. It does get you improvements in some settings, but those aren't as big or as sort of ubiquitous across tasks. Um, looking individually at the tasks, um, the cola task, the sort of sentence acceptability task, is a bit of an outlier um, because it's a little bit more syntactic than the others. Um, we see that that sort of Elmo and 
that, that Elmo and in our, in our sort of private experiments, kind of language model pre-training is very, very important to get that to work, that other kinds of pre-training don't really help there. Whereas other tasks, um, there's kind of more of a mutual benefit going on that, that um, pre-training on, on some subset of these tasks will generally get you decent performance on, on the rest of them. That and probably unsurprisingly, um, using, using, using attention, using large models really helps you. That, that none, of these, none of these sentence to vector models were able to get particularly competitive performance on glue, at least the way we were evaluating them. Um, but yeah, I, sh I should say I'm, I'm hoping to be able to say more about this soon. We've, we've run plenty of experiments as part of this JSALT work that we'll be, um, we'll be sort of polishing up and putting out in a few months. My impression is that plenty of other people are, are doing the same this summer. Um, Right now, our baseline experiments are just meant to answer a pretty small set of practical questions about uh, Elmo and, and Elmo and Glove and Cove and where we need attention, and, and that's about it. Great. Uh, it, it's a really interesting set of experiments that you ran. It looks, sounds like I need to look more at the results that you have online, because I, I thought there were some things that I expected to see in the paper, but I didn't, but you just mentioned them and said they're online, so yep. I, I, should go, I should go look at that. It, it's fine. Uh, it's a lot of experiments, and they take a long time to run. Um, so what you just said leads me to a point I was hoping to talk to you about, which uh, I think we disagree on, and so this might be an interesting discussion. So I find myself incredibly skeptical about uh, sentence vectors in general, especially pre-trained sentence vectors. Um, do you think these are a good idea? I guess it, from, from the experiments you just told us about, you, I, I'm thinking maybe you don't think they're as good an idea anymore? I don't know. What, what, what would you say? So I, I've, I've changed my mind on this, um, or at least I've changed my mind on, on the, kind of, the kind of problem I want to work on in sentence understanding. I have done some work on sentence-to-vector models. Um, some of the stuff I did with, with multi-NLI was trying to push this with the shared task there. Um, done a couple of papers on that topic. I'm, I'm, I no longer believe that it is a useful, a useful tool for the kinds of language understanding problems that are sort of most high profile right now in NLP. I think sentence vectors are an analytically really interesting problem. Uh, I think they're very useful for um, tasks that might involve retrieval, where you need to do a lot of similarity, um, similarity judgments between sentence meanings very quickly. But if you want to solve question answering, translation, entailment, things like this, forcing sort of sentence representations into a vector bottleneck doesn't seem to work. I think Ray Mooney's famous, you can't create the meaning of a whole bleeping sentence into a single bleeping vector. I think that is that is basically right. And that's that's part of what motivated this. Yeah, uh, I agree. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you're right that for some applications, um, like... Uh, say I want to have some huge database of sentences that I can like do some locality sensitive hash to do quick lookups in this vector space. That makes a lot of sense, right? But even then, the particular vector that you're going to use is going to have some extracted features that is a fixed fixed length set, right? And so, it, like, however you pre-train this is going to be focused on some particular objective, and hopefully it matches how you want to actually use it. I guess I, I feel like things like um, Elmo or language models or, or something that gives you a vector per token is just inherently more scalable to information content than a single vector. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's right. Cool. Um, one other thing I wanted to, to pick on you for, or at least have a discussion about, is, um, uh, sorry, I, I really like this work. I'm, I'm not trying to, to be negative here. Um, but I, 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 again, am extremely skeptical of leaderboards in general. Uh, I, I've, I'm on record. I, I recorded a podcast episode complaining about them and how they encourage bad science. So what, 
why why have a leaderboard and what do you think? I, I, I think it's clear you like them, so why? So we, um, I, we had a, we had a long debate about this internally, and I think they're they're um, they're a, they're a useful evil, maybe a necessary evil. Um, I I completely agree that leaderboards do incentivize bad science. That that having this kind of conspicuous public num- number one spot um, incentivizes people to get that recognition by doing a ton of experiments to try to sort of exploit little quirks of the task of the benchmark to get there at the expense of building experiments that actually allow you to answer interesting questions. Um, So I think it does lead to these sort of uninformative papers. At the same time, I think having a public leaderboard um, prevents a couple of um, serious other kinds of bad science that we do see in in applied machine learning in NLP. So one straightforward thing that it it prevents by having um, this sort of public, uh, public online platform with private test data is just the sort of simple issue of overfitting the test set. Um, by having this online platform, we make it difficult for people to evaluate more than a handful of times on the test set. You can't look at the labels directly to analyze them. That makes the results a bit more trustworthy. I think that's that's the less serious issue. I think the slightly more serious one um, is simply sort of giving everyone the tools to make fair comparisons. Um, one thing I've seen a lot of as a reviewer is that the papers that um, dwell the most on reaching state-of-the-art performance that are sort of most motivated by this also tend to give the most misleading picture on what the state of the art actually is. And so I think it is very useful, especially when reviewing papers and sort of evaluating existing methods, to have a conspicuous public list of here's what works, um, especially, and, and this is what we're doing, a list that includes here are the parameter-rich models, here are the small fast models, here are the models that share a lot, here are the models that don't. So sort of for any system that's being proposed, you can kind of look and straightforwardly see, all right, who else has tried this and did it work? I think that's useful for sort of keeping keeping us honest in these conversations. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree that it helps you to um, know that you've evaluated things correctly and like are in the same class of things. But uh, you said that like as you're reviewing papers, people might um, be led to uh, bad comparisons. I would say actually that the leaderboard encourages the wrong kind of comparison because it's just someone built some architecture that got this number. And, and yes, I'm comparing against that number on the right metric, on the right data, but actually it's not a controlled experiment at all. And I have no idea what gives me the performance gain over this other black box method. And what we really need is like some controlled experiment where I run things in the same setup, switch one, one thing and one thing only, and, and actually know what the the reason of this performance difference is? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I agree that that's right, and that is a that is a real risk. Um, I think it's I think it it is useful to have it is useful to have these open comparisons on the question of just kind of what works in general, sort of what collection of strategies uh, works. But I think for for most of the questions people would use glue to answer, cross paper comparisons aren't going to give you good evidence on those questions. And I just have to hope that that the the authors of these papers are are taking this seriously. Okay, great. Thanks, Sam. This is a really interesting conversation. Uh, it's a really nice tool that you've introduced. I hope people um, use it and gain some good understanding from it in a nice way to uh, compare on standard tasks. So it's a, it's a nice contribution. Yeah, I hope so too. And thanks for having me. Very much appreciate having this podcast around.